Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here this week with co-host Pete Wall and guest host this week, uh, a voice from the past of our podcast who has been who joined us before a, while, a long time ago. James Ewan is here. James, how are you? I'm very well, yeah, Paul. Yourself? Yeah, very good, thank you. And Pete, how are you? Uh, I am doing excellently, although I told you just before we came on that I may have uh, smashed a bone in my foot, which doesn't really help. The, you know, we've been talking about our athletic endeavours the last couple of weeks, uh, listeners. Well, um, yeah, I might be out of the game for right now because I've, I've done myself a wrong. And I decided to run up a hill and run back down again. It was like too far and too hard. So that's a, a lesson for us all. Um, I wanted to say, James, when you were on last time, you were talking all about your film endeavours there in Bristol. How are things with you at the moment and what are you sort of involved in or how, well, I suppose more generally, how's life in Bristol, films and not films, really? Life's, um, yeah, really good in Bristol. Big changes in the last couple of years. Massive changes. Married man now. Two young children. Um, my eldest four, my youngest two. And um, yeah, um, going back that sort of two, three years ago, I was involved in... Uh, Cinemi, which was a, a platform for, for filmmakers, making short films and independently made features. No longer doing that. Um, I sold the business around about two years ago um, to someone no longer running Cinemi. And now a friend of mine who originally was involved from the start back in 2008, he's running it now, um, doing short films on a, a monthly basis. But I work in um, a cinema full time. Um, I can name drop if you want me to. I work for Showcase Cinema Deluxe at, in central Bristol. Tremendous um, sound setup in, in that particular cinema, as I remember. Yeah, we, Pete was when yeah. we saw Blade Runner on my stag do. So. <laughs> we were just mentioning off air about the, the X Plus screen and directors and so on. And also involved in um, a community cinema in the, the village I live in, Long Ashton, called LA Cinema, where we show films on a monthly basis to the community and a really good mix of films we show mainstream hollywood features european films films for families and kids um and it's good they got really good facilities really big cinema screen good kit and yeah they're doing a good job so yeah check them out or if you're in Long Ashton and Bristol, come along because it's only a fiver. So to, to get into what it is that's going on on this week's show, everybody knows the format, I hope, by now. We're going to have two features this week. Paul, what are we covering? I think I've hinted at one of them. What are we covering this week for features? Uh, we are covering this week for our feature reviews. Uh, the latest film from my favourite filmmaker, Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then we are covering uh, the fairly well-regarded classic uh, uh, Apocalypse Now. Uh, which came out, or Apocalypse Now, the final cut, should we say, which was released in cinemas last week. So we've all three of us have seen both of those films, so we'll get into that a bit later on. Very excited to talk about both of those. I feel the discussion might get heated on at least one of them. <laughs> yeah, the, the final cut, now that you say it back, Paul, sounds like the sort of capstone on a horror franchise. But um, <laughs> And I suppose in, in many ways, that's kind of what it is. But um, before that, you know that this show is not just feature reviews. What we have is our walk through the cinema, uh, oral, 
literal walk through the cinema, which begins with uh, a section that we call in the foyer. In that section today, Paul, I think we have some pretty juicy movie news to get into. And first of all, a story that you brought to my attention that involves uh, the MCU, I know pretty dear to your heart, um, and in particular one Spider-Man. Can you give us a little bit more info on that? Yeah, so it appears, um, due to recent news, that the MCU may be Spider-Man-less. I thought there was a pun there. There's no pun there at all. Spider-Man-less isn't even a thing. So yeah, it might be Spider-Man-less. Um, basically, Marvel and Sony have fallen out. Um, well, not necessarily fallen out. Their, their deal for... So Sony own the Spider-Man character, and they have struck a business deal with Marvel to let him appear in the MCU movies from Civil War onwards. Uh, this deal came to a close with Spider-Man Far From Home, and the two studios have unfortunately failed to agree terms to continue this deal. Um, what that means for the wider MCU, as it stands at the moment, is that the MCU films, as in the course of Iron Man Avengers stuff, will no longer be able to feature the Spider-Man character, and the Spider-Man films will no longer be able to feature any of those characters. So... This leaves a pretty big gap in the MCU considering how key Spider-Man has been to their narrative. Um, so uh, fans are up in arms, as you can imagine. Um, there's been calls to boycott Sony, which I think is probably a bit harsh because they're both big companies. They're both being greedy. I'm sure they can get their heads together and come to a deal on this one. So I don't think boycotting one or the other is the way to go. Um, Tom Holland, as I understand it, is signed up to two more Spider-Man films. So it might we might not lose Tom Holland as Spider-Man. We might just lose Spider-Man from the MCU, which I think, to be honest, as they've set him up to be such a core core sort of component in the story um i think is a bit of a shame and i think tom holland is tom holland's definitely one of my preferred characters in the mcu because i think he brings so much needed uh youth and energy to proceedings i think he's one of the better actors in the group for sure so this to me is is a bit of a shame um i would be very surprised if they can't get their heads together um do you guys care any <laughs> any thoughts yeah i mean for, for me paul i mean it's, it's well documented on our show that i think i go less on um sort of comic book films a bit than than yourself but at the same time i think you're absolutely right that tom holland's like energy and youthfulness and just sort of vim and vigor and stuff has injected something into the whole uh, mcu at the same time i mean it, it should be said tom holland himself is going to be absolutely fine like you mentioned i mean there's probably going to be more in terms of Spider-Man movies with him in the lead but in addition he's signed on to all kinds of projects you know yet to see release so he seems to be an actor who's just on the up and up and maybe this is a, a sort of short-term blow but long-term I don't know that it's going to hit him that hard um, obviously your news isn't just about the career of Tom Holland but in terms of the MCU I suppose I'd throw it back as a question how much do you think this damages, other than the stuff that you've mentioned, how much do you think this actually damages future MCU-based products? Uh, products, it's a slip. Uh, projects. <laughs> fair, yeah. uh, Freudian slip. slip yeah. uh, projects. And, and do you think that really there are films that have already gone into like pre-production and stuff like that where they're going to have to take a turn or make some change? I, think, because they, of I this? think if they do have to make a change, I think they'll they'll be capable of doing it. I mean, if you watch, for anyone that's seen The End of Far From Home, it does set up, the post credit scene does set up um, the MCU films going in a slightly different direction with the Spider-Man character. So it would feel a bit of a shame if that's just left open-ended and then they have to sort of rewrite the rest of the Spider-Man films. But on the flip side, we are through the Avengers um, Infinity War period now. So that big, there isn't a big sort of, there isn't a big team-up film plan, certainly on their agenda that they've announced anyway. So, 
if the if any if this was going to happen, I guess narratively this is the best time for it to happen. Um, but we shall see. I'm, I, I wager they'll probably work out some kind of um, remuneration between the two of them, um, and then maybe maybe agree to at least allow the the current storyline to come to a close and then part company. But we shall see. James, any thoughts on this? You're not a big superhero film fan, as I know, but I'm going to dig myself a hole with you with your listeners, and I kind of side with Pete here a bit. Yeah, I've seen some Marvel movies here and there, like some, not so keen on others. I think the kind of sad thing is these companies are so corporate, they're not short of a penny, are they? I kind of think it's quite sad that they can agree terms. And one of the most significant things about these comic book films, particularly Marvel, is having worked in a, in a cinema at the moment, these are the films that are drawing in the crowds, in fairness. These are the films that are making all the big money from a cinema point of view, and I'm like digressing a little bit here, would cinemas necessarily still exist if it weren't for these films? Because Avengers Endgame was the biggest film by far this year in terms of audience. My kind of opinion is these companies, they're very successful. They're not short of a penny. Agree terms and just just do things that are right for the, for the fan base. And yeah, just don't be so greedy. Yeah, no, I don't disagree, to be honest. I don't disagree. And instead, this is a boycott one side or the other, I think, is nonsense. Because, yeah, if it, both companies are obviously being a touch greedy. I mean, Disney are making literally all the money in the world at the moment. So uh, of all the, of the companies that could budge, I guess it's Disney. But then they're reinvesting the money in $100 million TV series. So, yeah. It's not that long ago that I recall an MCU cinematic uh, world that didn't involve uh, young Spider-Man and was doing just fine in terms of the stuff that James is talking about in terms of bringing in box office receipts and that kind of thing. So as much as I've just read um, earlier on an article that described this as a gut punch... I feel like that's kind of overstating it a little bit and probably the massive host of incredibly well-known uh, actors who are involved in the franchise to this point with or without Tom Holland. I, I would imagine the MCU is sort of going to roll on fairly unabated. Do you think that is overall going to be the conclusion to this thing or do you see it having any real tangible impact financially if nothing I can't else? see it having a tangible impact financially to be honest I mean there's the you know the the as I said I'm of the three of us I'm certainly the biggest superhero film fan even but with that even with that proviso I'm still not a massive Marvel fan um, and it's in turn compared to some, shall we say? But yeah, I think it, I think they'll roll on regardless, without a problem. Even the more average superhero films like Captain Marvel, which I didn't go far much on, I didn't go too much on Spider-Man: Far From Home as a film in its own right, despite Tom Holland's performance. They easily they easily broke a billion, so I think they'll be fine financially. Um, I think it'd just be a shame for the hardcore Spider-Man fans not to see him on screen with all the other heroes, uh, especially as sure. we we're looking at possibly seeing reboots of Fantastic Four and X-Men coming up. So I think that yeah, I think it's disappointing for fans, but hopefully they will come to some agreement. Yeah, I mean, just as you say that, I'm sort of reminded that there probably are, um, you know, scores of, of young fans in particular whose hearts are, are breaking at the news that, that you know, the whole crew can't <laughs> yeah. be together. Uh, tell you what, though, as a remedy to that potential comic book heartbreak, um, imagine the ecstasy uh, amongst a certain generation of people uh, learning our second news story of the day, which is that a variety have reported that Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss have signed on 
for another installment of The Matrix. This would be essentially The Matrix 4, whatever they decide to call it. Um, it would be nice if it was The Matrix 2 and we could kind of forget about Reloaded and Revolutions. Well, we'll see that. Maybe they call it The Matrix, re Matrix Reimbursed. Reimagined? Re I don't know. Redirected? Uh, who, who knows? Redirected. I think that's a good chance. Yeah. So uh, this uh, allegedly is going to be a sort of continuation of the Neo Trinity and perhaps Morpheus story as well. Although Lawrence Fishburne currently not confirmed to be rejoining the franchise, it remains to be seen whether or not he will jump back on board. Um, it's uh, currently Lana Wachowski co-working or working together on a script with a writer called Alexander Hemon um, and also the Cloud Atlas novelist David Mitchell, who obviously the Wachowskis adapted into the bonkers three-hour uh, epic that was Cloud Atlas. Um, yeah, uh, before I get into anything else, initial thoughts, guys, on this news. Were you both big fans back in, what, 1999 of the original? Are you jonesing to see another one? Is this good news? Is it sort of mediocre news? Or do you just not really care? How do you feel? I'm going to be a little bit of a cynic. Um, I haven't seen The Matrix since it was released in 99. And it's interesting that the news comes off the back of the re-release of the original film. Mm. I didn't see the, the re-release on the big screen, but people I've spoken to said it still stands up as a great achievement. It still looks very, very good um, 20 years on. So it's interesting that this news has come about within a, a week or two of the re-release. The only thing I kind of will say on it is it's interesting that Hollywood are sticking with this very safe formula, which they've stuck by ever since cinema pretty much ever began i guess remakes sequels we've seen this time and time again with the the star wars franchise we've seen it with numerous remakes and and what do they call it when they rehashes rebranding reboots i think hollywood know that this kind of stuff puts bums on seats it's popular people like nostalgia part of me as i said the cynic in me i'm not really that interested we'll we'll see time of release we'll see what the reception's like paul be interesting paul, what's your temperature on the uh the, the news uh, on i'm the all into this i'm all into this to be honest like i saw the original at the cinema again recently and it did completely with the james it blew me away all over again like yeah i remember seeing the the matrix on the cinema screen in 1999 uh on the on the friday that it came out and i remember coming out of the cinema with my friends just going oh my fucking god i've never seen a film like that before like it, it, I'll never forget seeing the Matrix in the cinema. It's one of those cinema experiences that will always stay with me. Like, I just, I still love the first film. I think it's absolutely superb. Um, the sequels, yeah, um, problematic in places, shall we say. Reloaded is better than you remember it, but still bloated. And uh, Revolutions completely forgets that people were more interested in what happened in the Matrix than outside it. Um, and I think that's where the, the sequels kind of fell off the wagon for me and they disappeared up their own ass to an extent, um, which is a shame. Um, and they they employed too much CGI. They went completely over the board with things. So I'm kind of with you, Pete. I'd be intrigued to see... Oh, sorry, going back to something that James has said, and I think, yeah, I'm, I'm with you in terms of we are getting... It's, it's a very Hollywood formula to give sort of reboots and remakes and sequels. I'd rather... I mean, a new version of The Matrix was inevitable. It was inevitably going to happen in the same... Like, without a shadow of a doubt. I'd rather it be with the original creative team and the original cast than a reboot. Um, so if we have to have it, which we do, because, as you say, they like doing this because they make money, I'd rather have this team involved uh, than someone new having a shot at it. That being said, I'm kind of with... I'm with you, Pete. 
Will they have the bottle to ignore the sequels and do a direct sequel to the first one? I don't know, because that would be upsetting well, it'd be upsetting Lana's own work. Um, so I'm very intrigued to see where they go with it. I'm excited that they've got the original cast back and colour me intrigued. Yeah, I mean, a couple of words from the people actually involved or directly sort of most centrally involved here. Uh, Warner Brothers Prez, Toby Emmerich, has said, uh, we couldn't be more excited to be re-entering the Matrix. You see what he's done? Uh, with Lana. Uh, <laughs> Lana is a true visionary, a singular and original creative filmmaker, and we're thrilled that she is writing, directing, and producing this new chapter in the Matrix universe. And then, because uh, as we know, like Lana... Uh, Wachowski, uh, formerly Larry Wachowski, co-wrote and directed the first three movies with uh, the the her sibling, who is now Lily Wachowski, who doesn't seem to be, uh, again, a bit like Fishburne, returning for this next instalment. Uh, Lana Wachowski herself has said, uh, many of the ideas Lily and I explored 20 years ago about our reality are even more relevant now. I'm very happy to have these characters back in my life and grateful for another chance to work with my brilliant friends. Um, yeah, like you, Paul, I walked out of the cinema in 1999, having seen it in sort of opening week and was just scanning the environment for glitches in the Matrix. <laughs> Anytime I got deja vu, I'd freak out about that. Or you see a black cat and you see it again. I mean, it had a massive impact then. So much so that actually uh, when that movie came out, I would have been 15 years old, 16 years old. And um, I was contemplating what to do at university. And I ended up in no small part due to the Matrix uh, studying both English and philosophy. Um, and then okay. and then the second and third movies came out. And being a philosophy student at that time, I realized these don't really make any sense. So uh, it was kind of like perfect straddling of a period of time for me. And yeah, I, I, I'm kind of with both of you to the extent that uh, like my gut reaction is amazing. I want to see more of the Matrix. You know, Keanu Reeves is in a bit of a renaissance period right now, isn't he? And uh, yeah, you know, this feels like sort of fertile ground for this thing. But at the same time, from what James said, it, there's a cynical side of me, um, believe it or not, that sort of thinks like, yeah, it's a big cash grab and we should probably be a bit cautious before getting overexcited. But I prefer to go with the first side, which is, uh, yeah, get really enthusiastic and feel like a 15 year old again. So, um, <laughs> yeah, r roll on Matrix 4. There's no release date at present, as is probably not surprising, uh, but it's hoped that filming will get underway next year. So Keanu Reeves has got time to get back to the training room, I guess, after all his John Wick stuff and uh, keep in shape and, and make sure he can do, you know, effective lightning fast hand-to-hand -hand combat and like dodge bullets and that before this actually uh, gets gets made. Any more... And he's doing a new Bill and Ted as well, isn't he? The, oh, I think yeah, that's he's doing true. A third, yeah, yeah, a third yeah. one. Yeah, he's got all yeah, sorts. Confirmed, yeah. And then yeah. he's in uh, he's in that... Uh, uh, help me Cyberpunk Paul. thank you Cyberpunk Cyberpunk 2077 yeah that awesome looking video game so yeah yeah he's a busy man he is a busy man right uh, no you're breathtaking or what everybody shouts around that thing now that's um, the one yeah yeah no you're breathtaking Pete so um, <laughs> that was the section that we call in the foyer we're going to be back right after this with our popcorn movies Right, so back with our popcorn movies. This is where we talk about a film of any age, uh, from any any age of any age. I've just said that three times for no discernible reason. Where we talk about films that we've watched this week doesn't have to be new releases, can be anything good or bad. Um, 
I'm in the 1999 mood this week because we were just talking about The Matrix. So I'm going to jump in and start here with... Uh, so if The Matrix was the best movie, one of the best movies of 2099, sure, 2099, I've jumped into the future now. This is 2077. Are you okay? I'm struggling. I'm struggling here. I'm going to start right. It's 1999. If The Matrix was the best movie of 1999, which it arguably is one of the better ones, the second best film of 1999 was... Are you ready for this? Stephen Summers' The Mummy. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. No, it's not right. that good. But I rewatched the Mummy quite recently. Uh, uh, well, very recently, in fact. And the, this is the Brendan Fraser, Rachel Vice starring uh, version of the Mummy. Yeah. Um, and actually, do you know what? It stands up surprisingly well, guys. I'll be honest. I had I had a lot of fun with this. Like some of the CGI is dated very badly. Uh, it's, it's a very very silly film in places. The Mummy um, seems to have inexplicable superpowers and control over absolutely everything. And then towards the end of the film, completely forgets he has superpowers and is really easily defeated. Um, but Brendan Fraser, what happened to Brendan Fraser? He was great in the Mummy films. Mate, like I'll, he's, I'll he had you. so much charm. I'll tell okay. you. Um, <laughs> he did a really good film. Sorry, I'm digressing a little bit, but can you remember when he did with Ian McKellen called Gods and Monsters? Oh, I forgot Co- he was a couple in of years Monsters. after. Yeah, yeah, that was a good film. Yeah, it was a little bit different for him. I was going to dive in and say um, recently on our social media, I put up a post about a, a television series that's on Now TV or Sky Atlantic, uh, which is called The Affair. Um, with uh, uh, Wilson, Ruth Wilson. Um, Ruth and Wilson, in that, yeah. Brendan Fraser crops up as a really creepy sort of psychotic prison guard. guard and uh, it, it's bizarre. He's piled on the pounds and he was almost <laughs> unrecognisable, but it was very much Brendan Fraser. So yeah, it was nice to see him again. Um, Paul, so you're saying this basically stands up 20 years on? It stands up remarkably well, I'll be honest. I kind of put it on just for a bit of a, just a, not a joke necessarily. I was just like, oh, just see. We watched that and American Pie in the same evening. So I went full night, partied like it's 1999 for sure. Uh, and The Mummy stood up a lot better than American Pie. I won't get into American Pie now. But yeah, it's just the, the effect, as I said, the, some of the effects have aged inevitably. It's 20 years old and some of them certainly were amb- ambitious at the time. But the whole thing, it's got it's got a spring in its step. It moves along at a sort of Saturday mat- Saturday morning matinee pace. And it's just a, a really really fun film, to be honest. Uh, and then I watched The Mummy Returns, which will not be brought up ever again. Uh, <laughs> say no more. Yes, <laughs> yeah. The Mummy. I will say a bit more. The Mummy Returns uh, is the is what happens when you give a director free reign and too much money, and you just get an absolute mess. But the original Mummy, well worth revisiting, and a damn sight better than the Tom Cruise version from last year. Yeah, the bar. Was- was pretty low there i guess yeah yeah um james what have you been watching this last week and or for the last three years or so since i last saw you yeah well there's there's two films that i've got on my mind from last week um totally different one a seminal film the other one absolutely awful um back on the subject of re-releases a couple of months ago i saw the re-release of a clockwork orange and i'd not seen that for years and years and years and I was absolutely blown away by it, that I saw it, um, I went to see it twice on the big screen. And um, yeah, I've just not been able to get my mind off the, the whole film, and particularly the, the second half where Alex is put into re- rehabilitation with the, the Ludovico, that famous scene with the, uh, the eyes clipped back, mm. where Kubrick damaged his, his corneas. But I've kind of got back into Malcolm McDowell because I thought he was a great, great actor. 
in that period in the late 60s, set 1970s. Was he in If as well? He was, wasn't yeah, yeah, so If was the first film he made with Lindsay Anderson, around about 68, 69. Then Clockwork Orange after that. And then he, he kind of went for a peak of making some really good films. He made Time After Time, um, which was a really good film, his first film he made in Hollywood. Um, oh Lucky Man, which is kind of a sequel to If. But then he kind of seemed to go for a phase, sort of mid-80s onwards. There was kind of a, a little bit of a slump, a little bit of a pickup in the 90s. He made Tank Girl, Star Trek Generations. And then after that, he's kind of just been making straight-to-video DVD releases where he literally just sits down in a chair, <laughs> almost looks like he's reading his lines from an autocue, and just phoning in his performances. I've never, do you know what? I've never... Now you say it, he's always <laughs> sat in a fucking chair when you see him in a film these days. Paul, <laughs> like, Paul, what's the uh, what's the Rona Mitra uh, action movie um, that Doomsday. is about... Say again? Doomsday. Doomsday. He's in that. Yeah. Is he? The Neil Marshall one about the end yeah, of the world. Yeah, but that's... Yeah. But that, again, I think, James, that falls into your kind of sitting in a location, phoning in a performance category, <laughs> yeah. to be perfectly take, take the money and run, clever yeah. guy. Yeah. So coming back to, to Malcolm McDowell, um, I've been watching various Q&As he's done with the re-release of Clockwork Orange, and he is great on stage. You need to see some of his Q&As. He just comes across as a sincere, really funny guy with some great tales about Kubrick and, and working on that particular film. And in fairness to Malcolm, he says, the day I die, I'll just remember, I'll be remembered for that film, but not a bad film to be remembered for. So I, I was decided to check out some of these bad films. And a friend of mine, again, is a big Malcolm McDowell fan. So I spent a good couple of hours sending him trailers of all these shockingly bad <laughs> films Malcolm was in. And there was one that I really wanted to see. So I picked this one up on eBay for a pound. And it's called A Night Train to Venice. And it's got a really good cast. So Hugh Grant made around about Four Weddings Time just before. Um, Tania Welsh, gorgeous woman. Am I allowed to say that? Um, <laughs> get in trouble these days. Edit that out. Um, gorgeous woman who was in Cocoon and Raquel Welsh's daughter. And Malcolm McDowell as the, the bad guy. And this, this is a shocking film. Not even shockingly good. It's laughable. It's terrible. It's, it's, it's about a guy who's a writer, played by Hugh Grant, who's published some factual books about sort of books about the history of, of fascism, the rise of fascism. And he's meeting someone in Venice to get this book published. And he's on this train and he meets on the train. First of all, the, the woman that he falls for, but also on the trip train are a, a bunch of these fascist hooligans, one of which who ends up in his, his cabin that he's sharing with him. And Malcolm McDowell is su supposed to be like the leader of this fascist gang, yet he has no interaction with the gang whatsoever. <laughs> he has about 15 or 20 lines in the film, and it is just terrible. Um, yeah, it was... Is he sat in a chair at any point? Yeah, he stands up occasionally <laughs> when he can be bothered, but I was just surprised. Like, it wasn't even... It was laughable in places because the script was bad, the acting wooden, but I thought Malcolm would be the best in it. I thought he was, you know, 
the better actor, the strongest actor, but he was the worst, didn't it? He didn't even carry the film. And as I said, he said about 20, 20 words in the whole film. So not even so bad it's enjoyable then, just straight up bad. <laughs> you need to see this film to believe it. And Hugh Grant's gone on record and said this is the worst film he's ever made. Oh, and he's made some turkey. <laughs> he has, but not as bad as this one. And this got premiered at Cannes. They came up with an alternative title, and I think they came up with a, a new edit, edited it down from 90 to 70 minutes, and the alternative t- title's called Night Train to Hell. <laughs> and it literally is hell, sitting through 70 minutes of this film. But I'm going to have to watch this you, film now. You've got to see yeah, it thanks, to James. believe it. Yeah. <laughs> How can you go from A Clockwork Orange to, to this? Pete, what about you? What have you watched? Well, it's a world away from Malcolm McDowell, I would suggest. But what I have watched this week uh, is a wide release comedy movie, broad comedy movie by the name of Good Boys. Uh, It's essentially the tween Superbad. Um, And, you know, that was a bit lazy as a comparison when we were talking about Booksmart. But here it's actually on the money. Uh, This one is directed by a guy called Gene Stupnitsky. Uh, the writer of, for example, the Cameron Diaz vehicle, Bad Teacher, that I'm sure some of you have seen. Uh, also a writer on the American version of The Office. It stars a trio of little lads. Uh, they're yeah, about 12 years old in the movie. Uh, the head of them, I guess the most recognisable, is uh, the boy from Room, Jacob Tremblay. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. Also Keith L. Williams and Brady Noon, the other two kids I don't know. I think they've done TV work mostly to this point. Also in a sort of supporting role, Molly Gordon, who was AAA in the aforementioned film Booksmart um, the girl who had sort of a reputation around school she's she's good in this movie too uh, Will Fort is uh, plays a father in the movie but doesn't get a lot of screen time um, and then there's a sort of precocious little Asian kid called Isaac Wang uh, playing a uh, well I should say his character's precocious I don't know anything about the actor himself but uh, yeah what we have then is three I would say selectively naive 12 year olds uh, who attempt to make sense of the world around them and get across town to a kissing party uh, via run-ins with sort of adult world problems. Uh, Molly, uh, as in the drug, not a you know, girl, a friend of theirs. Uh, bondage, kink stuff, potential paedophilia, all sorts that they can throw into the path of kids who maybe don't know what all that stuff is about and, and less, you know, should they? Um, a lot of weight here is on the shoulders of the young cast, which I think sometimes shows. I think that um, maybe the actors are, are sometimes struggling to remember clean line reads and not just yeah. come across as reading their lines cleanly. Uh, they can't always carry the movie. Unfortunately, there's been these decisions made in the film where they've given less time to yeah people like Will Fort, who could handle himself on screen with a lot more, I think, aplomb. Uh, even the sort of young adult uh, characters of which there's this pair of friends who are going to go to see Kendrick Lamar. It's a contemporary reference. Um, And yeah, it's their Molly that ends up in the hands of these 12-year-olds. They don't get enough time either, which is a, a shame, I think. Some of the jokes hit. I did laugh out loud sort of quietly once or twice in the movie. But the funny thing about it is that the lines for me anyway that hit, the funniest stuff, isn't the gross out, crude like sex related you know above the age bracket of these kids stuff it's actually just 
believe it or not, funny lines. Uh, there's a reference to, to firing a necklace in a kiln, which comes up a couple of times. And even just the word kiln was quite amusing. And the idea of it's quite amusing to me. And then the, the one belly laugh I had in this movie is actually a line about um, plagiarizing a cookbook. Um, so yeah, not all the dick jokes and smut and stuff so much. Stephen Merchant crops up in a sort of throwaway limp cameo as a kind of maybe paedophile, maybe just collector slash creep, which didn't do a lot for me. Um, and I'm not sure, guys, about the wisdom in a film like this of having a sequence where the lads run across a freeway, uh, dodging cars moving at full speed, given the fact that it's a 15 certificate, but I think we're all aware that it's not going to be just 15 year olds and above who are going to consume this thing. I know when I was 12 years old, if I saw kids on screen running across the freeway, I'd be getting myself down the freeway to have a go at doing it myself. So it just, maybe I'm getting too old, maybe I'm being too sort of cautious. And I mean, James, as someone with kids, I'm sure that you sometimes have a different angle on films that you used to see differently too, but... Yeah. Uh, oh, and the, the biggest crime of all, Paul, and you'll understand, there's a Run the Jewels track that's used in the trailer and it's also used in the film itself. And it's kind of less impactful than it should be and a little bit wasted. And, you know, that's a real shame. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's not all bad. Check it out. It's got kind of middling reviews. I think it's something like 60 on the Metacritic uh, uh, scale. Um, but Good Boys is not going to like live long in my memory, to be perfectly honest, no matter how many times they, you know, shut doors off with double-ended dildos and stuff to get cheap laughs it just didn't really work for me um yeah that one's good boys it's on wide release at the moment have we got anything else in this section there paul uh, no that's that's it with this section um we'll be back after this with a section we like to call coming attractions so we are back it's as if we were never away. And this is the section of the show, Coming Attractions, as Paul mentioned, where we run down films that are going to come out in the next week. The idea being that you'll listen to it and you'll think, oh, that sounds interesting, and get yourself along to a cinema like the one that James works at, keep him gainfully employed, and keep the whole system just moving along. So um, the first one that we've got this week is called Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. This one, as you would imagine, is a sort of horror-leaning macabre tale uh, directed by... Andre Ovredal. Paul, you'll know this director. Troll I think. Hunter, isn't it? It's yeah, Troll, Troll Hunter, Hunter and, yeah, yeah. and the Autopsy of Jane Doe, I think you reviewed on our show. Yes, which was which was solid if overplayed its hand in, in part. So yeah, I'm quite excited about this. This is an like a horror anthology thing, isn't it? I think there's three different tales. I, I, I think, believe so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the info I have, it's set in late 60s America. Uh, this is all sort of change in the air, uh, something we'll get back to with the Tarantino movie, I'm sure. Um, in a small town, there's sort of generations of shadowy behaviour uh, sort of looming around a family called the Bellows. Uh, a little girl in that family has kept a sort of diary um, collection of stories about what horrors she's witnessed in her life. And a group of kids in the 60s come across this book and then what happens in the book seems to become real, ever too real, if anything, for, for these group of, of teenagers, I believe. Uh, yeah, director with some pedigree. Uh, the title will get some people in the cinema. James, interested in this sort of horror-y anthology Troll Hunter director movie. I've not seen Troll Hunter, oh, but I've, it's a lot of fun. I've heard, yeah, I've heard really good things about it. It was more of an indie film, was it? It yeah. wasn't an English, was it English Norwegian, language. Or? I think no, it's Norwegian. Yeah, it's a bit, Norwegian is a bit of like a sleeper hit. I think it had like word of mouth rather than sort of big, big push and stuff. Yeah, I don't know an awful lot about this. I know it's released in cinemas tomorrow, but I kind of like the idea that it's um, 
a series of stories rather than just the one narrative kind of like the idea of you know free short films or whatever you said said it is and it it might be nice that it's it's maybe like a different take on horror as opposed to a lot of the kind of slasher gory horror films and horrors become kind of like so popular in the 2000s it kind of went a little bit out of fashion in the 90s and it seems to kind of be back popular and from a cinema point of view it always seems to to put bums on seats so but this one seems a little bit bit more interesting than your average horror so i think this is going to be yeah. a bit lighter in tone i think from what i've read like okay. you can probably take sort of teenagers to see it more so than it is a sort of straight up sort of 18 hard 18 like gore fest so i think it's going to be quite entertaining maybe more um, psychological which should yeah yeah which which could be yeah. Good. Yeah. good so i'm intrigued and it's, and it's it's impossible not to think of whether the comparisons are hold up when we've actually seen it i don't know but not to think of that anthology movie uh, ghost stories that was the british horror movie from sort of a year or, or yeah, so yeah which i really yeah, enjoyed I, I saw that yeah really it was that, really good i thought, I thought yeah. really good we we liked it on the show anyway um talking of horror movies we've got another one um in that category that's going to be coming out wide on august 23rd this week as well which is crawl uh this one from director alex Iyer that people will know from switchblade romance the remake of the hills have eyes piranha 3d um it stars kaya Scodelario from uh, Skins I'm going to say but also like the Maze Runner and a bunch of movies uh, Barry Pepper from everywhere Saving Private Barry Ryan Barry Pepper's back in a film yes yes he I is I only talked Still the other day work. when I was watching Saving Private Ryan I said to my wife is, "Where's Bert? what happened to Barry Pepper and she looked at me and she went I don't know who Barry Pepper is and that was the <laughs> end of that conversation uh, well I'm, I'm, I'm very excited for this you've seen this so you know you know whether it's any good or not I guess uh, I'm super super excited for this a good creature feature B-movie always ticks is I'll always go and see it regardless. So yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, for for those who haven't seen the trailer, um, it's pretty high concept. You've got a, a hurricane fi- force five hurricane, uh, category five hurricane, which strikes uh, the part of the United States where Caius Godelario lives, and she returns home to check on her dad, basically, who's played by Barry Pepper that we mentioned. Uh, and then, uh oh, she gets stuck in the crawl space underneath the house, and the hurricane has led to a bunch of alligators getting in there as well, and. Uh, yeah they've got to try and get out of that sticky little situation so yeah i have seen it and i think that like fans of alex Iyer, uh, won't be disappointed and i think fans of sort of genre scares that don't as much as i've seen people um like belly aching about this online post the previews it, i don't believe this is a movie or a director that relies too heavily on jump scares i think it's there's a bit more um he's a bit more intelligent than that so yeah i think you know if you're into that sort of thing get yourself out there to the cinema Next on this list, a little bit more highbrow, perhaps. Uh, this one is A Faithful Man, or L'Homme Fidèle, uh, from director Louis Garel. Louis Garel, you'll know as the sort of pasty-faced, skinny, bony man in uh, the Bertolucci film The Dreamers, perhaps. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah that's he's that's an a actor. nice description of him. I bet he'd appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, we're pretty tight. Um, yeah, he's uh, a guy who's so far only uh, directed one feature. That was called Two Friends. I haven't seen it yet, but it does star uh, Golshifte Farahani, who is the girl from Patterson. So that in itself is enough to get. Uh, okay. To, uh, yeah. Get that yeah. One out. yeah. 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 Great, so yeah. In this one, believe it or not, a man who made his career acting in sort of erotically charged movies alongside beautiful women, uh, he's cast a former internationally renowned model, Letitia Castor, and she co-stars with Louis Garel himself. Uh, (laughs) Some people never change. Uh, The movie is about a couple's relationship that becomes complicated when she leaves him for his best friend and then returns after the best friend dies. Um, Last thing to say on this one that I think is interesting is the writer of the 
screenplay is a man called Jean-Claude Carrier, who uh, wrote, amongst other things, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie for Louis Bunuel, and also a certified copy for the late Abbas Kiristami. So um, some pedigree in terms of like cinephile content on our show excited interested about this guys i think you sorry paul i think you sold it for me just on the the writing credit to be honest um discreet charm of the bourgeoisie one of my favorite films of all time absolutely love louis bunwell i think he's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time maybe that's a topic for a, another show more people should watch his films um, don't know anything about this film until you've just given me the, the synopsis and the background. Yeah, I'm going to check it out. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm into this, definitely. As you say, from the, uh, I have no, I can honestly say I haven't seen certified copy, so, uh, and I really want to. It's been on my list for years, So, um, but I'm aware that it's uh, pretty well regarded, shall we say, as a film. So no, I'm um, yeah into this one for sure. The last one <laughs> for this week's roundup of things that are coming out is a documentary that just took my uh, interest. It's called Hail Satan? Question mark. The question mark's important, I think. Uh, this is from documentary maker Penny Lane. Now, Penny Lane is not someone I know a lot about, although she's getting a lot of praise around this thing. She, if anyone's interested in sort of priming for this movie, there is a, uh, her previous feature documentary, which is called Nuts, uh, and it's currently available to stream via Amazon Prime Video. So um, I was going to check that out for this episode and just ran out of time. But the documentary itself, this one, uh, Hell Satan, is about uh, the rise of a, the satanic temple. Uh, it says here, only six years old and already one of the most controversial religious movements in American history. The temple and its enigmatic leader, Lucian Greaves, are calling for a satanic revolution to save the soul of America. But are they for real? The idea being that perhaps this group are doing a, more than a little bit of trolling of the powers that be, and particularly um, the sort of middle American uh, Christian Bible belt. Does this sound like a topic that you guys are interested in watching a sort of feature-length documentary about? Uh, yes. I was reading an article about this in a newspaper. I've completely, forget, completely forgotten which one it was. But yeah, this documentary does intrigue me. And I think if they're... I think I might have read about this once somewhere before um, in terms of what they're doing. Yeah, and as you say, I think there is an element, certainly an element of trolling in what they're doing and by the fact they've called it the sort of the satanic church. I think it's a lot more interesting than just... It's definitely more interesting than straight-up Satanism, I think. Uh, either that or they've been very good at masking it as some kind of sort of irony... Uh, but yeah, no, it's an it's an intriguing concept, um, and I think it's yeah, it should be should be right for a documentary. I think. Yeah, again, I got to admit I've not come across this film at all. Um, big fan of documentaries. Going through a phase of watching some really good ones on on Netflix. Um, yeah, I'll probably give this one a go. It sounds um, sounds really interesting. Yeah, and, and just to point out, I don't know if I mentioned earlier, so both A Faithful Man and Hail Satan are on very much limited release. So for um, you, James, obviously places like uh, The Watershed in Bristol, but any kind of like indie art house cinemas are having runs of these movies, at least in the UK. Um, but obviously at bigger multiplexes, you're unlikely, I'm talking to the listeners obviously now, unlikely to catch it at a, you know, uh, you know the ones that are the big ones that we have in the UK. We don't need to advertise them anymore. Um, 
I, I would say on this that it's been praised from corners of the internet that I respect, um, and I think we respect, not least David Ehrlich at IndieWire, but also, uh, Paul, my potentially new favourite film critic, critic uh, Wendy Ide, who writes for The Observer, and that's got absolutely nothing... I like, when, I, I like Wendy's articles as well. Yeah, yeah, Paul. We're on first name terms just, just immediately, but yeah, no, I've, I've Wendy, enjoyed Wendy's Wendy is articles. an excellent critic, Paul, and that's got, <laughs> that's got zero to do with the fact that when, when I was having a little dialogue on that movie Holiday, she started following us on Twitter. It's got nothing to do with that. It's just about her writing being oh, really okay. good. But, but yeah, qu- quite well, genu- Welcome, Wendy. <laughs> quite genuinely, when those kind of people, you know, point something out as being worth your time, I think it probably is. Uh, talking about being worth your time, uh, very much so worth your time, is the section of our show that we call Feature Reviews. Today, after a little break, we're going to get into the new Quentin Tarantino. That one will be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. After this. Oh, yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino and possibly penultimate film, but that remains to be seen. Um, I'm excited to talk about this one, um, but before we get there, um, we've all seen it. James, you've seen it, haven't you? Yeah, yeah Pete, you've seen, seen this, this one. So all good, so all three of us are going to get involved in this, which, which is exciting. I do like a three-way film chat. All good. Uh, Pete, but before we get there, though, before we get to what each other thought, uh, Pete, set this one up for us. Cool. So what we have here is a character, fictional character, called Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who is a fading television actor, perhaps faded television actor, um, and his stunt double, played by a a man called Bradley Pitt, that you may have heard of. Um, These two characters, they strive to hang on, or they're striving to hang on to relevancy and success in what is like a rapidly changing film industry in the year 1969 in uh, Hollywood, uh, California. Here uh, we have like a what Tarantino's called a day in the life movie. So these two men move around the city, they encounter a host of characters, some of them on the rise, some of them on the wane. One of the individuals that they encounter is a sparky young actress called Sharon Tate, played here by uh, Margot Robbie, who has moved in next door to Dalton's character with her partner, the Hollywood immigrant hot property Roman Polanski, played by Raphael Zavirucha, I've tried. Uh, We know that Tate's days are numbered, if you know anything about the story going in. Um, So what we can do as an audience is just go along for the ride, watch these people move through this environment, knowing full well that the gears of time are turning and that what's coming is inevitable. Before we get to our inevitable inevitable opinions, here is a little clip. I got a four-man team here, Rick. If I need more than that, I got to get it approved. And, you know, I I, I got to look after my dudes. Hey, hey, and if your dudes were a better match for me, I'd say, oh, okay, you got me. But, but, but that's not the case, and you know it. He, he's a great match for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Hey, you could do anything you want to him. So, so throw him off a building, right? Light him on fire. Hit him with a Lincoln, right? Get creative. Do whatever you want. He's just happy for the opportunity. Rick? Yeah. I don't dig him. And I don't dig the vibe he brings on a set. So, James, as you've guessing, uh, would you like to go first? What, what did you think? Yeah, so like, um, I kind of want to digress a little bit because I think we'll all kind of agree that Tarantino, from like our generation, from our point of view, when those first two films came out, early 90s, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, I was about, I was at school at the time, senior school, and they had, they had a massive impact 
at that age, I, I couldn't see them at the cinema because I was too young. But I remember seeing them on video for the first time and just being completely blown away. I think that that time in the 90s, you kind of felt like something needed to happen. There was kind of the, the old school filmmakers still making good films like your Scorsese's and your Spielberg's, the kind of the usual suspects. And this kind of young guy, I think he, he made a film before Reservoir Dogs that I don't know if it got much traction, but he kind of came along and kind of shook up the industry. Right place, right time. He had that massive impact at Cannes Film Festival where he won the top award with Pulp Fiction. And I think we were all a, a little bit in awe. Would it be fair to say that this kind of I new was, young maverick say, yes. had, had kind the, of entered the scene? I would say yes. In the 90s, I was definitely in awe of him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the, James, when you give that sort of colour to the background of Tarantino, I think it's really useful because one of the things uh, before all the dense discussion that you can have about his output as a whole or even this movie here, the, the first thing that comes to mind when you sort of cast me back to that time is the number of friends and people you knew who had a Reservoir Dogs poster on their wall. Because it, because it hit so big with a sort of teenage and young adult audience, it was almost like a status symbol to be, you know, down with Tarantino. If you were down with Tarantino, you were kind of down with being a film fan, you know, knowing your films. Yeah, it, and I think the great thing about these two films was it's rarely that the kind of the soundtrack as well sells the movie. And those two soundtracks were, were big. They sold loads of copies they probably even charted those two soundtrack albums and a lot of those those bands and artists we don't even heard that music it's quite obscure like mm. little green bag who'd uh, no one's heard of the george baker selection until they'd heard that song that famous opening sequence of them all suited and booted you know with that with that song then he kind of resurrected dick dale's career mm. with Mizaloo for pulp fiction um so the the soundtrack was kind of as important as the the film itself. I think it's fair to say that both um, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction are probably number two and three most influential movies of the nineties after Stephen Summers nineteen ninety nine The Mummy. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's, that's without just, question. Just about. Yeah, you don't even need to to pose that question to a true film fan. They they already know it. So so Paul, like coming from the the color of sort of background Tarantino and uh, you know we've talked about Tarantino here and there on the show um, and the fact that both of us I guess have reservations or increasing reservations as the career has played out into the second half of these nine films although as James mentioned I believe it really is 10 films at least um, that that he's responsible for but he would like to forget maybe one one or two of those um, this one here the ninth feature what I guess before we get into the meat of it, what were your expectations coming in? Going into this particular film, seeing the the trailers, the the write ups, the reviews when it um, did its festival run, I can't remember where it premiered. Was it? It was Cannes, wasn't it? It was Cannes. Yeah. Um, I saw the early Guardian review from Peter Bradshaw, which isn't always a good um, reference point. If but you want to know the plot? It's a great reference point. I did have big expectations of this film because I'd read a lot about the the Manson killings in the late 1960s. Really interested in that. The, the Sharon Tate story, of course, like Roman Polanski, his history in in Korea. I kind of went into this with with big expectations, and I got to be honest, I quite like this film. I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was a better Tarantino film. The early reviews I read 
had said, get ready for the last 15 to 20 minutes, which is vintage Tarantino, and this is the best part of the film. For me, the worst part of the film was the last 15, 20 minutes. It doesn't fit with the tone of the rest of the film at all. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, as, I guess, de facto moderator here, before we get ahead of ourselves and jump to how the film ends, Paul, the same question to you. What was your expectation? Like, were you really down on having to sort of trudge to the cinema to see this because you were going to review it for our show? Or did you feel like it could go either way? I felt like it could go either way for me. And I mean, I, I really, really had... I didn't like Django Unchained. I thought I'd, I thought I was done with Tarantino. I haven't seen Hateful Eight. He was saying, like, Tar- the early Tarantino stuff... I'll be honest, I've rewatched Reservoir Dogs. And for me, it doesn't stand up particularly well. I find... I find the novelty value out of Tarantino's dialogue has gone for me and I find it a bit grating. Um, and Pulp Fiction is probably my favourite of his films. I'm not saying he's a bad filmmaker, I'm just saying he's one that doesn't necessarily resonate with me in the same way that he used to. Yeah, for me, I went into this kind of on both sides of the argument. Really, I was like, okay, um, this could be good. It seems the, the subject matter seems interesting. This seems like it might be a dialed down Tarantino. We'll get to the ending in a bit. Uh, and I really liked DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, and I was just like, okay, I'm 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 intrigued to go into this. Maybe I'm maybe I'm going to have a good time with this one. So I went in with my eyes I went in with my eyes fully open and hoping to enjoy it, shall we say? Um, and my God, did I not enjoy this film uh, just uh, just at all? I mean, I can't. I can't say right. What I will say from the outset, it looks incredible. Like its production design is fantastic. The recreation of the sixties is almost second to none. I think the film looks fantastic. Yeah, the, and the, that for the me, cinema, cinematography. Yeah, is, it's, it's superb. It, it looks absolutely superb, and that for me at points is probably what stopped me walking out. I'll be honest, because I don't need to know how much Tarantino knows about cinema. I, I find this this script particularly like this this bit where Al Pacino's talking to um one of the two well, the two actors about the fact he's seen this film and Al Pacino goes yes I watched your TV show on sixty millimeter print and then he goes and I watched this film on thirty five millimeter print it's just like the audience doesn't need to know that Tarantino knows what different prints are and for me I just found the whole thing and the the shots. The shots where he's kind of mimicking um, DiCaprio's character's films looked incredible, but for me w- were far too long. I found the whole film just massively self-indulgent and a bit boring, if I'm honest. It just wasn't for me. Before you spray your critical bullets in all directions, like the ending of a Quentin Tarantino film, let's just like <laughs> wheel back slightly to, to the, like stepping through the movie, I think. Well, a what did you bit. think, Pete? Well, uh, so I was going to say is a kind of lead into what I think about yeah. this, that I feel like I've got reservations. I've got quite a few of them. But before that, given that this is ninth feature and Tarantino himself says that he's only making one more film and it may or may not be this Star Trek thing that we were talking about a week or two ago, it may be that he's just, you know, having us all on and he'll carry on for a while. Um, To me, for better or worse, this could be the ultimate Quentin Tarantino film. That's fair. For better or worse. (laughs) So it's rooted in the Hollywood of his childhood. I mean, he's even said things like the shots that are in the car, like driver long shots where there there are tons of those he's deliberately framed a lot of those shots from the perspective of a child because he can remember as a sort of six and seven year old being driven around by uh, family members through Hollywood and just taking in all the stuff selectively that he was interested in which ultimately is sort of microcosm for what he's then done for his entire career is showing us the things that he 
in particular is selectively interested in, which is, I think, what a lot of filmmakers do. Um, it's I all... assume he's taken his women here from the perspective of the treatment of women in this film we're, and the way he shoots we're them getting from there, the perspective Paul. We're of getting a 15-year-old boy. We're getting yeah. there. <laughs> and the, and the, the foot fetish thing that's, yeah. that's yeah. going Absolute, on. Sorry, Pete, go on. Absolutely, yeah. yes. There are some toes <laughs> front and centre here. Yeah, but then, you know, it's also about the fall of the Spaghetti Western and the fall of sort of Golden Age of Hollywood, which are two things that he's near on obsessed with. Um, so, yeah, and incredibly close to his heart, right? He's called this film his memory piece and he's even compared it to what Alfonso Cuaron did with Roma which in that regard only seems to be kind of apt like these are things that he remembers from a time where he was not young uh, not old enough I should say to actually fully process all of the sort of murk and intricacy of what was around him so what he presents instead are the views and ideas visually uh, and sort of dialogue wise of a child and again for better or worse because the biggest criticism I think from a lot of people on Tarantino is that he has a sort of arrested development in terms of the way he deals with all sorts of things not just women but also like on-screen violence but also you know an obsessive uh, like you were saying Paul like a reference library to like every everything that he's ingested from the world of film. I always remember on the special features for Pulp Fiction, I think it was. Um, yeah, yeah, I think for Pulp Fiction. He said this thing about how, like, he got over Jean-Luc Gollard, but just, like, the way he said it made me want to punch him in the face. But, you know, that's who Quentin Tarantino is, right? So then here, you've got him reuniting all these people from his filmography, even down to, I learn, uh, Tim Roth, who was in this movie until all his scenes were cut. The original film ran four hours and 20 minutes when it had gone through a full edit. Uh, So maybe that one will come out on Blu-ray for the steelbook collectors amongst us, April. But you might might dodge that one, I don't know. I will dodge that. I can't do four hours, 20 minutes of this. I want to throw back to you, James, that um, I felt that, like you were kind of saying, Paul, the film looks great, and it also did a fantastic job of immersing the viewer in this world in a way that I thought was kind of hard to shake off when I left the cinema and just difficult to resist at the time. And I, like you mentioned earlier, James, I think that the real um, plot-wise or organisationally, the real weak point of this movie is what he's decided to do in the last 20 minutes. Um James, before we get back to Paul and probably me and uh, a load of like takedowns of Tarantino, um, what are some of the other best things about it? Like, what did you most enjoy other than the visual stuff and the scenery and so on and so forth? What else did you really enjoy from this movie? I quite enjoyed the... Um, I disagree a little bit with Paul. I quite enjoyed the, the first two and a half hours. Um, it was just the last 15, 20 minutes that let it down for me. It was... Um, He's obviously got this love affair with the the 60s. I'm a little bit curious why why he decided the late 60s. I know it's set against the backdrop of Sharon Tate, Polanski and the the Manson murders. I'm a little unsure why why that late in the in the 60s because I kind of get the kind of political discourse and what was going on in America at the time with the involvement in Vietnam, the big music scene that the hippie movement and there's a little bit of that in the film but then there's a lot of stuff missed out as well um as usual i, I enjoyed the soundtrack I, I thought the soundtrack was was really good i bought a copy of it and that's kind of rejogged my memory about the film i thought dicaprio and pitt together their their relationship which is kind of key to the the film i thought they were great i thought their chemistry was superb um and there were some scenes I, I really enjoyed, um, one which I'll come back to a, a bit later on. But 
for me, and I had a discussion with someone about this this earlier on, and we we can't say too much because for those who haven't seen the film, if we talk too much about the ending, we're going to spoil the whole film experience for them. But one criticism I've got about Tarantino, and I think you guys might shoot me down or may not, is it's, everybody talks about the violence with his films. And Tarantino, in numerous interviews, has been asked about violence in his films. And there was a, an interview a couple of years back with Krishna on Channel 4 where he had a big argument because... Krishna, as a journalist, asked him about his portrayal of violence in films and his responsibility as a, a filmmaker, as an artist, and he he wasn't happy with the question and had a kind of hissy fit about well, he, the whole he, thing. He shut his ass down. He shut his yes, ass down is what he did, apparently, <laughs> according to QT himself. And I, I kind of think with Tarantino's violence, and I felt this in the last scene of the film, I, f I think the violence is too extreme. The violence doesn't shock me in any way. But I think, you know, when you see someone's head being smashed on a wall 15, 20 times, I think it takes the shock value out of it completely. I think the more clever thing to do as a filmmaker, if you're kind of showing a scene of violence, a murder scene, I think kind of left is more. And I think, come back to, maybe this is an unfair comparison. I mentioned A Clockwork Orange earlier on. Saw it a couple of months ago. That rape scene where the guy, the gang, break into the writer's house, and Malcolm McDowell starts singing, singing in the rain, mm. and he kicks the writer. The violence isn't extreme, and you don't see much of the rape. But for me, that scene is more shocking psychologically than any scene from a Tarantino scene of extreme violence. I think he just overplays it on the violence. I think he needs to tone it down. Hitchcock, another example, I think Hitchcock always said, kind of, less is more, it's more about the effect. And if you take the one of the most iconic scenes in a film, Psycho, the shower scene, the Janet Lee famous scene in the shower with a knife, you don't see that much of that, the murder scene, but there's, there's a psychological effect on the viewer. And I think, I know it's his trademark, and I know people love this stylistic that he brings to the film, but I think he just overplays it. Paul, I, I want to pass the baton to you that you're more than welcome to reject and completely change the topic, but I can't help but pick up on what James said, that when you smash someone's face against a wall, well, the someone that that is seems uh, instructive, does it not? And this is a movie, un not unlike some of his other movies, where you could kind of categorise the women in the film into a few groups, maybe like uh, Dick Tease, shrew, obstacle, and in Margot Robbie's case, largely mute. This is one of yeah. the preeminent actresses of her generation who is reduced to almost a non-speaking part. Why is it that Quentin Tarantino hates women, Paul? I don't know. Uh, you'd have to ask him yourself. But uh, <laughs> yeah, and you know, and the, the more I've read about Tarantino and like he's choked actresses on set for the perfect shot and spat on actresses, like not fucking cool, dude. Like what are you doing? You're fucking, you're a child. He's just an adolescent boy who hasn't grown up. And this, you know, for me, the last, the last 15 minutes of this film just prove that. He's just like... Oh shit, I've got to throw violence in somewhere. It's a Tarantino film. Now, I didn't like the first two and a half hours uh, of this film a, 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 a lot, to be honest, but I'm with you, James. I preferred them to the final to the final 20 minutes because I just thought were completely tonally 
tone deaf compared to the rest of the film. The rest of the film I thought was quite muted for a Tarantino film. I did think it was too long. There are a couple of scenes that I liked. I still think he's quite good at dialogue, don't get me wrong. But my God, does this final scene not work? And yeah, going back to why does he hate women, how he treats women, it looks, parts of this film look like it could have been shot by Michael Bay. Like the way just, <laughs> like the camera creeps up women's legs and there's just shots of the ass. It's like, oh, it was the 60s, dude. Well, it doesn't make it okay. And actually, as far as I'm aware, Tarantino didn't grow up in Hollywood in the 60s. He worked in a video shop uh, until he was late teens. So to compare it to Rome is ridiculous uh, because this doesn't feel biographical to me. I don't believe, I don't believe, I might be wrong, Tarantino didn't grow up around a load of film stars unless I'm otherwise mistaken. So I don't buy that being biographical. But to be clear, what I meant by that is his early childhood was spent in LA and from the perspective of Fine. being a okay. young kid, I think he, he sucked in a lot of the sort of neon signs and influence and atmosphere around him in the late... I take, I take that back, QT, if you're listening. Take it back. There was, um, <laughs> going back to the kind of the, the last scene and the, the violence again... The, there was a scene previous to that ending, the finale, where Brad Pitt gave that girl a, a lift and dropped her back on that ranch with um, Manson and the the gang of women that would eventually kill Sharon Tate. And there was a there was a scene in that where they let his tire down on the the yeah. car, and he wants to go and see. Um, an old colleague of that him, was one and of he the made a, in the film, I think. And I thought there was loaded, there was tension in that scene. Yeah. And nothing, nothing happened. There was no, there was just a fight scene between Pitt and one of the, um, the the hippies. But I thought there was more tension in that than that that final. I agree because I, I, I was that, on the edge of my seat. It was, that, that scene for me was going to happen film, here. That scene for me was the film's highlight. I thought that was really well done. And yeah, there was palpable tension, and there was a little bit of violence towards the end of that scene. Yeah, he smashed his face in. It was like it was yeah, like what but, happened in Django, by, Django and Chain, kind of. But by Tarantino standards, that was that was moderate. that was tame, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. For his standards, Pete, what did you think? Like you, you kind of you seem in between us in terms of what you thought of it. But yeah, so yeah, I I, hmm, I can't really say I'm with one of you or the other one. To be perfectly honest, I I got very wrapped up in the world, and I was always sort of on the edge of really letting go of my preconceptions and. Um, my, my doubts about the ability of Tarantino at this point in his career to helm something that I'm going to genuinely enjoy. But I did find myself genuinely enjoying some of the movie. I mean, particularly the stuff where we've got uh, the DiCaprio character dressed as kind of Benicio del Toro on the set of one of the productions that he's involved in, where he has particularly two scenes stood out. One with Timothy Oliphant, who's playing an outlaw, where he can't remember his lines and is on the verge of a complete like existential crisis and sort of alcohol-infused breakdown and then one where he meets this like preternaturally gifted child actress who's eight years old but sort of wise way beyond his abilities and I just thought like that stuff when Tarantino lets the characters live a little bit and lets the dialogue flow in less of a sort of fevered over caffeinated way I really enjoy that stuff um, I think a lot of the stuff with Brad Pitt was good. He looks like a kind of mid-career Robert Redford. Um, the bit where he goes and fixes the aerial on the top of his building. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of sumptuous. And again, like James said about one of those scenes, like nothing particularly happened. Uh, he made an observation about Sharon Tate who was sort of over the way, but like nothing massive happened. But then it's it's not only that Tarantino's obsessed with the violence, it's that 
latter career Tarantino is obsessed with this sort of reworked revisionist history. So without spoiling anything, people know what happened to Sharon Tate. But of course, at the end of the Tarantino movie, something quite different is going to happen because he's in control now and he's pulling the strings on, on sort of the puppets, right? And so uh, I, I felt like I get it. I get it. What you did with Django. I get it. I get it. What you're doing here with wanting things to be a different way and the golden age to carry on and on and, you know, everything to remain the same. But I guess to cap this with something that is difficult for me to swallow, if we take all that stuff as read, that this is the end of a golden era, that this is a, a loss, that Tarantino himself says that Sharon Tate was sort of like an angelic figure who apparently lives now in our hearts as well as on the screen, you know, all stuff that he's said directly, then we're bringing this movie out in 2019 where Tarantino's not long removed from his involvement with Harvey Weinstein and the fact that the golden age of men being able to do whatever the fuck they want and then be sort of boo-hooing about the fact they've been disempowered, there's, it's hard for people who are harsh critics of Tarantino to be asked not to draw a parallel between those two things. And that's tough because then, you know, even if you don't go that far in your reading of the sort of subtext of the movie it leaves you feeling a bit queasy, not only when everybody starts get, getting like smashed to pieces at the end of this movie, but a number of times throughout its, you know, hefty, what, two hours, 40 minute runtime. So I, I really wanted to like it. I really wanted to come around and I really wanted to not just lazily come on here and go like, oh, Tarantino is, you know, this and that and I can't get past it. But ultimately, I can't really get past it. Um, but everybody signs off. Like, everybody signs off on Tarantino's yeah. work. I mean, Bruce Dern... This is where I'm, I'm with you, Pete. This is where I don't... I can't grasp why everyone signs off on him yeah, constantly. It may, Br right. Bruce Dern's here, but it's not Bruce Dern. It's the others. It's like Lena Dunham is in this movie. I mean, I, I don't... I, it baffled me. I don't know. Like, what? I haven't heard Lena Dunham talk about Tarantino directly, and maybe I should, but... I find that thing amazing. Kate Berlant, who was so good in Sorry to Bother You, who seems like a woman with, like, strong opinions and attitudes and, you know, sort of a feminist bent, is in this movie. Uh, you know, and on and on and on. And all these actors that I love. And Scoot McNary, my actual boy, is in this movie. Um, but I still can't get past the problems. And, and I've read, like, loads of long pieces on it. And I've sort of tried to surround myself with the Tarantino world and worldview and it, at the end of it I still need like a little bit of a shower and that's that's a problem isn't it really um anything more lads like good or bad that we've missed so far uh second to your best man speech those are probably some of my favorite words that have ever come out of your mouth Pete so well done sir <laughs> no worries <laughs> so that's where I stand I couldn't I couldn't put it any better than that so I won't James, any final thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I don't think Tarantino's going to care, is he? Because no. <laughs> people want to work with him. Um, he'll probably go down as one of the the great filmmakers, whether we like him or not, um, of the 20th century. Um, will he make a 10th movie? I kind of feel like you. He wants to do Star Trek. i just like to see him do something completely different and not be so much of a one-trip pony. But, yeah, and just, just tone down on the violence. Yeah, Paul, f closing thoughts, 
for good or I, bad? I, I, I'm not far off hated it. I've taken a lot of criticism already on it, but I didn't like it. Isn't it like a shame as well? Because we do this show and we're both, and all three of us evidently, are kind of pretty obsessive about movies. And like, you can dig into this film and there are like Easter eggs all over the damn place. Oh, for sure. Yeah, 100%. And it's not that I didn't spot those. It's not that I didn't get this film. I just don't like his directorial style. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel that. And... <sighs> I, I mean, talking about people signing off on it, by the way, uh, Deborah Tate, the sister of Sharon Tate, has said that she's, you know, very supportive of the production. They're now apparently close friends, her and Tarantino. One person who hasn't uh, co-signed the movie is uh, Emmanuel Siegner, the uh, wife of Roman Polanski, who has criticised the production and the director and has said that, like, putting Polanski's actual image in it when he is, you know, a social prior and exiled in Europe, who here is just sort of treated as a walk-on cameo. Oh, and can we just say, by the way, isn't Damien Lewis like the worst performance in the movie and he's only in it for about 30 <laughs> seconds? My word. Yeah, I'd forgotten he was in it, actually. Yeah, but his Steve McQueen is not great. I like that. The actor. other thing you could probably add to that is the... Um... The Bruce Lee family. Oh yeah, cool. they've oh, um, yes. come out I've about the yeah, yeah about the Bruce Lee portrayal. About the, yeah, the depiction poor. of Bruce Lee that supposedly wasn't um, arrogant and egotistical, but we certainly know someone who is arrogant and egotistical, and that is Tarantino. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Bruce Lee's kind of turned into like a comic figure for like ridicule in this movie yeah, isn't it it's just weird it's just the self yeah the film's just straight up bizarre in places we'll take a little break and we'll come back with a film that i'm sure we've got absolutely nothing to say about and that one is the uh the final cut version of apocalypse now right after this So, Apocalypse Now, uh, Final Cut, a film that some people might have heard of. Um, Francis Ford Coppola, arguably his best film. I think possibly maybe his best film. Uh, um, I still think Godfather 2. Uh, okay. Godfather, Godfather 2. Yeah, Godfather, Godfather Toss 2. Toss up between so those two. That's fair. Um, yeah, so if you don't know about this one, uh, Pete, set this one up for us. At the height of the war in Vietnam, US Army Captain Willard, played by Martin Sheen here, is sent... Um, to see Colonel Lucas, played by Harrison Ford, and given a special mission that does not exist and never will exist to seek out and assassinate a mysterious Green Beret colonel called Walter Kurtz, um, whose army has crossed the border into Cambodia and is now conducting hit-and-run missions against the Viet Cong and the NVA, the army believes that Kurtz has gone completely insane. And despite being one of the most decorated officers in the US Army, he must be stopped. Uh, Willard, uh, for, for the purposes of having a plot, Willard accepts the mission uh, and sets sail up the Nung River into the heart of darkness and, of course, the horror, the horror. Here's a clip. Again. But I felt like I knew one or two things about Kurtz that weren't in the dossier. Dolong Bridge was the last army outpost on the Nung River. Beyond it, there was only Kurtz. Lance. Hey, Lance. What do you think? It's beautiful. Huh? I mean, what's, what's the matter with you? You acting kind of weird. <laughs> hey, you know that last tub of acid I was saving? Yeah. I dropped it. You dropped acid? Far out. 
So to say I was excited about seeing this on the big screen would be an understatement and I would wager that both of you guys are probably in the same boat here. Um, so to see any version of this film on the big screen was was is a fantastic privilege and thankfully it didn't disappoint. So this, as we mentioned before, is the final cut. So I believe this is about 15 minutes longer than the theatrical cut and a good half an hour, 40 minutes shorter than Redux is my understanding of it. Um, correct me if I'm wrong there, Apocalypse Now I think Geeks, that's about right. Sure that's, it's, certainly, yeah, it's certainly somewhere in between the length of the two. Yeah. Um, so for me, my first experience with Apocalypse Now was years and years and years ago. I've only seen Redux the once, so I'll be honest, I wasn't that familiar with the film when I saw Redux to really know the major differences between the two. But Redux for me did feel like it was a touch on the long side at nearly four hours long. Um, so you've got some stuff here that uh, has been cut from Redux. The French, the controversial French plantation scene towards the end remains present in this version. Um, and we'll get to what we thought of that uh, in a bit. Um, and there are some other elements that have been cut. And I think some elements that have not previously not been seen in both. Would that be correct? Did you know it better than I do? I've not, I haven't seen it since I was 16 and I saw it on a VHS video cassette. Uh, okay. I think I saw the original cut, which runs at about two hours 20. Yeah. I'd not seen the Redux release. That was released about 10 years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, so that touches on, touches on the four-hour mark. And yeah, there's some scenes that were added into... There's a scene in that where they find... Discover the Playboy Bunny stranded in the jungle and then the French plantation scene, which were the two, I think, major additions, if I remember rightly. So Playboy Bunny scene is gone. The French plantation scene remains. Uh, before we get to those changes, because um, I do want to talk about those briefly, um, yeah, just... Just... Wow. I would say up there in my top five cinematic experiences of my life. I mean, a film like this uh, will unlikely ever be seen again. I think the closest thing I could say to this, probably in terms of in terms of what it did, in terms of its realistic special effects, probably Mad Max Fury Road, um, in terms of the fact that everything you see on screen here is real. Yep. So they reached out to the US Army to for the military equipment in Vietnam. Uh, the US Army said no, so they borrowed all the equipment from the Philippines Army. Um, so all the helicopters are real. All of the military hardware is real. When things blow up, things are blowing up. Uh, and when the helicopters fly over the tree line in Vietnam, uh, the helicopters are flying over the tree line. So this on the big screen is an experience quite like any other. And I think that's that sticks with me. So the practical effects side of it. Guys, what did you think of this on the big screen? We'll get more to the story in a bit. But in terms of practical effects wise, just flawless. Yeah, absolutely. Just to jump in on what you guys were talking about. The first time I saw Apocalypse Now, in fact, the only time I've seen Apocalypse Now was through sort of a haze of weed smoke at uni. So it, it, <laughs> it certainly resonated, but like in ways that were probably a little bit more like that sequence in which uh, the, the guy is... Uh, um, sort of navigating a war situation whilst on acid. Uh, it was a little bit closer <laughs> to that, to be perfectly honest, like horrifying and wonderful all at once. Tacking onto what you said, Paul, like it's totally this film of um, sensations, right? Like like massive, from the sort of massive explosions to the sort of sweeps through the jungle and all the sort of lush vegetation to the stuff from the air to the ground, like all these sensations swirling around you, like seeing it on a big screen was incredibly impactful and so much more so, not only due to the lack of, weed smoke but also due to the sort of um yeah the way in which it was presented compared to the first time when i would have seen it on like a 28 inch tv in like a crappy dormitory room or whatever so um yeah yeah like an amazing experience and i'm really glad like you that we had the the privilege of, of getting to see it i mean um are we gonna get into sort of the morality of the movie i, I don't know how deep we want to go on this review i mean where, where are we at uh we can talk about the morality of it because i think this because um 
Coppola said that he doesn't really express that it's not really meant to be an anti-war film, although it is sort of masquerade. Well, masqueraded as such maybe is the wrong word, but I think it's held up as such in some circles as an anti-war film. Um, as to where I stand on it, I, I don't know whether I can see it, see it as an anti-war film or not. In in all honesty, because there are there are times when it does seem to be glorifying the excesses of the U.S. military. Uh, but then there are other times when it seems to be just painting the picture of Vietnam as just an absolute insanity. So I'm not sure where I stand in it, whether I stand on, on either side of the fence. James, any thoughts on that? How it come across to you? There's been some great films on the Vietnam War and The Deer Hunter springs to, to mind as mm. one of my favourites. But I think this is probably the, the best in terms of the way it depicts the, the, the carnage and chaos of the whole Vietnam War and the whole politics of it. Listening to the Coppola Q&A after the film, I can't believe the, the film ever got made, to be honest. I think he had difficulties getting it financed despite winning the Academy Awards for Best Film for Godfather 1 and 2. Numerous production problems. I think Martin Sheen had a health scare. With that scene, I think he had a heart attack. He did have a heart attack, yeah. I, think he nearly, I don't think he was far off dying, to be honest, when yeah. they were making it. Harvey Keitel was originally cast and they he was fired from the film and replaced and then they had all sorts of issues with with brando watching the film again one of the things that i thought was so good about it and, and complex was kind of the way it was was structured i really liked the the screenplay and it, it almost felt like a little bit of a a film noir kind of detective movie in a kind of a way yeah yeah totally the, I got the, that the, the, the voiceover with the, the diary and the martin sheen kept and his kind of observations of the people on the the boat, the journey they were taking, it almost felt like he was like a I don't know, like a detective or no, cop tracking yeah, this. I can see this, that. Sure. If, yeah, absolutely. And then, trying to crack his motivations and whether yeah. Then towards the end, when they find um, Kurtz on the island, it almost feels like a bit of a Shakespearean tragedy, <laughs> yeah. like Richard III or mm. something, and. I I thought it was a film that kind of works on so many levels. I'm not sure it's just a war film. No, um, no absolutely, absolutely, it's um, definitely not just a war film. The direction, I think, Coppola in the '70s, for me, is one of the the all-time great American filmmakers. Paul, to jump on something you said, so you were saying like, is it an anti-war film or is it is it not? And I think that the answer is basically that it's more like ambivalent and ambiguous about that, right? Because yeah. like, as, as I saw it, at least this time, where I was, like I keep saying, sort of more clear-headed, um, that, that Coppola's view, as you can read from this particular piece of cinema is that like war is awful and terrible and rotten and confusing and like a hell as you were saying but it's also moments that are spectacular and like intriguing mm. and beautiful and sort of awe-inspiring and all of those things wrapped together in this yeah this kind of shared madness and there were points in this movie because of all those things where again and I, I guess I tend to do this a lot but like I couldn't help but sort of reflect on the position that we're in now because you know things that we now get regularly in our sort of news feeds all the time about how the whole world's gone mad and we're all going to be you know wiped out of existence in the next few years um th th something about the sort of um lunacy of like little ant people running around the earth they've been given and like chopping each other up and shooting arrows and bullets yeah. at each other yeah, uh, just you can't escape you when when you're revisiting like this trip up that river so um, yeah, we kind of suffer through the movie, I think, but at the same time, really enjoy parts of the spectacle of this movie. And those things exist 
at the same time. So, like, when we get to the end of this film, have we really evolved and improved and got better and gained perspective? And is that even possible? I'm not sure that Francis Ford Coppola believes that it is, nor that we should, like, expect that it is from, you know, two, two and a half, three, four hours of cinema, depending on which version you're, you're looking the, at at the time. On the subject of the version, so the, the, scene from the, the scene that sticks with me um, the most is one of the newer scenes, and again, I'm not an expert on this, but I do have vague memory of it. The French plantation scene towards the end of the film where they go and have a conversation with the French plantation owners, uh, and you have the slightly cringy sex scene. Mm. Um, I, for me, the original cut is the best cut of this film. For me, that French plantation scene comes a little bit too late in the film and a little bit too close to the sort of big denouement at the end where they find Kurtz. Um, what did you guys think of that scene? Were you were you aware it wasn't there when you'd seen it before? Pete, probably not. You probably thought the film was about 10 minutes long. Uh, <laughs> uh, were you guys, <laughs> yes, were you guys aware of that being added to it or did it feel like part of the film to you? That would be my question. I think they could get rid of that scene completely. Yeah, it was never there originally. Yeah. It felt quite on the nose, right, that? Like having them just discuss the politics of, you know, different ideologies, French versus uh, American and different forms of imperialism. Like it felt quite like um, didactic in a way that I don't think the rest of the film is. So, yeah, they could they could lose it. I think. Yeah, I think it can go. Yeah. So yeah. the original the original cut for me is, is the one to watch. There were some other little elements that I liked. There were some other new bits. I won't spoil all of the new bits. There's some other new bits that I quite like. There's I think there's a whole bit on the there's a slightly longer plot regarding the surfboard, I think, that wasn't there in the original cut, although I might be mistaken. But yeah, overall, this is just, yeah, an incredible piece of cinema. Yeah, this was, it's absolutely spoiled to see this on the big screen. And just the, the spectacle of the thing, the fact they actually made it, the physical effects, the fact that um, Coppola now essentially owns the film because he paid for pretty much all of it himself. Um, and yeah, like the hardship in it being made. If you watch Hearts of Darkness, watch Hearts of Darkness if you haven't watched that, because that will add add to your enjoyment of Apocalypse Now even further. Uh, a bona fide classic and just an absolute, privilege to get to see it on the big screen anyone else yeah absolutely and, and and i mean as the sort of whole swirling circus sideshow of our existence goes on i found out in researching this one that giancarlo coppola one of um francis Ford coppola's kids who's in that plantation sequence as one of the children um died seven years after production in a speedboat ac boat accident at age 22 oh, so like for 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 all of the sort of um, inexplicable um, insanity of war, then you see you know the sort of randomness and and fallibility and sort of um, uh, yeah vulnerability of like human life, even in the the biographies of the people involved. So yeah, it, it's it's going to be now. It was a memorable film already, but it's going to sit in my memory sort of even more indelibly because of having the experience at the cinema, like you were mentioning, Paul, and having the chance to to experience it that way. I think James, any final thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree. One of the best cinematic experiences I've ever seen on screen. Um, just that opening scene where you you get the sound of that the propelling fan, fan yeah. and then the the doors music, the Martin Sheen scene in the room with uh, this is the end, the doors. Just incredible from beginning to to end. I was totally captivated, and to be honest, I I enjoyed the Q and A afterwards as well. To finish our episodes, we have a section that sometimes is populated by a top five, but this week we have gone super long, so yeah. we're going to keep it short, and we're just going to give credit in our credit section to something that we think is right good and that we might have encountered in the last week or so. Paul, uh, what's good? What do you want to give credit to this week? Uh, I'll talk more about this in an upcoming episode, but I want to give credit to myself 
because it looks very much like we are going to shoot my first ever short film uh, as producer, my first ever short film full stop, but I'm producing a short film, Pete and James, and I'm very excited about it, and we are shooting it on the 14th and 15th of September, so I will talk more about that experience on the show for sure, but I'm giving credit to myself for actually making a film. Paul, it would be a dereliction of duty if I did not try and prize out of you some deets on what this is. Like, can you give anything in terms of like the kind of film, the genre, the the angle that you're approaching it from, like anything at all? I will say as much uh, this, at this point that it's a short film. Um, James, any uh, other than other than Paul's uh, short film, anything that you want to give credit to this week? Yeah, I want to give credit to someone who some people listening to the podcast may have heard of or might not have not heard of. I watched a film a couple of weeks back called Film Worker. I don't know if you've seen that one. No, I've been meaning Kubrick. to, but I haven't the seen it. Yeah, this, this is the guy who worked for Kubrick and pretty much gave up his career for, for Kubrick. It's an amazing story. And I think this guy, Leon Vitale who originally was a was an actor in Barry Lyndon. I don't think this guy gets the, the credit he, he necessarily deserves. So he was cast in, in Barry Lyndon, had a really great experience working on that film with Kubrick. Probably one of the few who did have a great experience working with him, because I hear he could be a nightmare from, from time to time. But um, he, um, he built up a really close relationship with Kubrick, and he said... I want to work for you. But previous to being in that film, he'd seen 2001 Clockwork Orange and just said, I want to work with this guy. And he said to to Kubrick, I I just want to be kind of your mentor, work on your films. And I think Kubrick said to him, go away, learn about the industry, get some experience working in in the film industry in different capacities. And when when you're some use to me, come back and, you know, I might use you again. And ended up being Kubrick's right-hand man. And since Kubrick's death has been heavily involved in the the restoration of the films for re-release and really involved in trying to make these films to Kubrick's original vision. So I kind of think this guy doesn't really get the credit he deserves. Everybody praises Kubrick as one of the great masters of cinema and I think there's no doubt about that. But I think this guy is as key to Kubrick's success because without these this guy, these films wouldn't have been made. Remind us of his name. This guy is called Leon Vitale. Leon Vitale. Right. I'm could... running out of time. Sorry. Pete, no worries. <laughs> I, I, I'm hastily trying to check, but I believe Film Worker may have gone up on um, Netflix recently. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so I've been, right. I've been trying to watch. I've been trying to watch that for a while. That's cool. Yeah, I think that's why it came back onto my radar because it was available there. So we got to get to it and and get back to it on this show. Um, yeah, I'll keep it as brief as I can. Uh, my uh, credits for this week goes to a thing called No Clip. No Clip is a crowdfunded media company and sort of YouTube channel, primarily YouTube channel at least to me. Um, created by video game journalist uh, called Danny O'Dwyer, is an Irish fella, and um, what he's done it basically is got frustrated with being a video game journalist and sort of churning out news articles on the weekly, daily or whatever basis and decided instead to try and get support through Patreon for longer form documentary films. So it is film related, lads, about uh, video (laughs) games. And so um, some of these are amazing. I mean, it depends whether you're a video game fan, but I think even if you're like a little bit or like casual video game fan, you'll get loads out of it and it's all accessible for free on YouTube. You don't have to sign up on Patreon to watch all this great content. 
content. So recently I've watched the whole series that was on IO Interactive, the developer behind Hitman, which has sort of been rejuvenated recently and it has become one of my kind of favorite franchises, I'd say. But he's also done really good stuff on people like Jonathan Blow, the creator of The Witness, which is just an amazing sort of video game puzzler thing uh, that you should check out. Um, also, he's done work on or a documentary on Horizon Zero Dawn, which is like a fascinating insight into how putting together something graphically breathtaking is actually even tackled in a way that you can understand you know like when you hear brian cox or someone explain the universe and it kind of yeah. <laughs> seems to suddenly make a bit of sense like danny o'dwyer's documentaries not by himself he's very much uh, i wrote down here even though i was kind of joking he's very much the errol morris of the video game documentary in the sense right. that in the sense that he is not the story he's not talking about you know his own uh, achievements or abilities or whatever what he's doing is pointing the camera at interesting people and people who can give insight into what they do so there's loads of good stuff check it out it's called no clip and it is on youtube for all of you to view at your leisure right well that's pretty much it for this week so james thanks for jumping on much no, appreciated thanks, it's thanks been for fun having me. hope you've enjoyed it yeah very uh, much so yeah all good uh, yeah in the meantime you can find us on at strangers cinema on, on twitter a stranger in cinema on all of the other social medias um, we'll be back next week with reviews of crawl and i imagine scary stories to tell in the dark uh that's it from me so thanks for listening shut up and sit down